Hello and welcome to the next podcast. This is Mark Bruno, the Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa Connect. And I am thrilled to have a very special guest, someone who's very close to the next the wealth management firm of the future project, Lisa Crawford, the Director and Head of Business Consulting at BNY Mellon Pershing joined the show today. Lisa, it's good to actually be with you in person to do a podcast with a real human being in the same room. It is. It's a great to have you here in New York City with us and thrilled to be able to show off our headquarters here at 240 Greenwich. Now, we have a lot to talk about. We obviously have fielded a lot of research this year. We've produced quite a bit in the terms of in terms of the webinars we've done, think tanks that we've done in person virtually and being here in December and looking back at all of the data all the people that we've talked to, I think the way I'm thinking about the future of wealth management is very different than the way I was thinking about it in the beginning of 2022. Um, and one of the main reasons is just how much is going on in, in the area of you know, human capital. Specifically, we've talked about the battle for talent. We've talked about lots of new roles that are emerging. We've also seen a tremendous amount of change in compensation in some areas of the business. And I would love to talk with you now that we're at the end of the year, turning the page on 2022 and looking at 2023, would love to get your thoughts on where you see some of not only the most important roles in the industry emerging, but where people can actually source some of that talent, right? We know that this industry is not getting larger and larger every day. We're not bringing enough talent in. So where do we go if we're trying to expand and bring new individuals into the industry to help, obviously, bring new people into wealth management firms. So maybe we can just start by looking at some of the research, um, some of our staffing levels. We saw that you know, roughly half of the firms that we've surveyed in uh, some of our work have added new positions over the last year. You know, younger firms right, were adding more new roles uh, more frequently than some of the more established firms. And the roles that they're adding are primarily support junior advisor types of positions. My first question for you, Lisa, is are those the right roles right, that we should be looking to add? And if not, what other types of positions should people be considering heading into 2023? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is the right role, um, but there are a lot of other roles that we should be thinking about as well. So when I walk into an advisory firm and I, and I talk to their staff and their executive team, the most common thing I hear is that we're beyond capacity. And so they should have already hired that junior advisor, or they should have at least had a pipeline of bringing that junior advisor in. And perhaps it's maybe a little too late, but bringing in that junior advisor is going to be a really critical success for them in the short term and just getting the work done. I think advisory firms are growing faster than maybe they realize they would be. And demand is higher from the clients that they already have, right? In turbulent times, it's more house buying, more money movement, more investments, more transactions. And so the, just the workload is greater already. But then we have to think then about what's the you know midterm and long-term goal. And without hiring, consistently hiring junior advisors, advisory firms are going to be perpetually behind in their hiring. And if they're not training and retaining and developing that talent, then they're going to find themselves continually at that point of being beyond capacity and stressed out. And that's what's going to cause people to leave, too. That is one of the hardest parts of this business, right? Knowing exactly when to hire. So it's encouraging to see that there are as many firms hiring in those support positions now, especially after 
at least leading up until 2022, we saw year after year after year of real growth, largely coming from the markets. So it's a great time to reinvest in the business. My question is, when you start looking for some of those roles, um, and at the Insight Conference, you had a lot of university students there this year, right? So you're making an effort to bring younger individuals, expose them to wealth management, expose them to your business. But there are not many other ways that younger students, college students, graduate students are learning about some of the opportunities in wealth management. And I think you could debate it, but I genuinely believe that there is you know, a, a real talent shortage, specifically when we're looking at you know, entry level roles. So if I'm running a billion dollar RIA firm, I'm maxed out, I'm at capacity, I know I need to hire a power planner, but there is only a short supply coming out of the CFP programs or the PFP programs. Where do I look and what's my first step? Yeah, I think the first place you look is inside. Right. So look at your current staff and ask them, who do you know? Who's in your network? And it's not necessarily about what education that person has or what um, previous job history they have. But think about who's going to be a really great cultural add to your business. You can train and teach a lot of the technical skills, particularly if they're coming in and the support roles. Once you've tapped that resource, I I tell folks all the time and I get made fun of about my love of Chick-fil-A. But, you know, go go to the places in your community, in your neighborhood where you're engaging with people in service capacities. And when you're blown away by one of those people, keep a list of who they are and keep in touch with them. Ask them for their phone number. Tell them you run a small business or, you know, a medium sized large business, whatever it is. Say, hey, you know, we are hiring all the time and. I really love engaging with you. Maybe there's an opportunity in the future for you to come work for us. And there's a firm I worked with in DC, the CEO, definitely larger than life kind of guy. And the last three people who've been his receptionists have come from restaurants that he frequented in the Tyson's Corner area on a regular basis. And they've all now moved into other roles within the organization and into operations, into compliance, you know. And so, yes, they came in as an admin, and now all of a sudden one of them's, you know, in a totally separate part of the organization. Before that, didn't even know what an RAA was. And so I think if we just think a little bit outside the box on where we're finding people, that helps. Beyond that, and there's some firms that do a really good job of this, is create uh, connection points with schools in your local area. Whether you're going to hire them as interns or full-time people, but that's just a, a great source of, of talent because they're already in your area. They've already shown a desire to want to live in New York or in Idaho or wherever you are and create that connection point with the professors. So I, I was down with a firm down in Alabama a few weeks ago. They have a really tight connection with that school. And every time they go to hire a power planner or a junior associate, they get first dibs at the top of the class of that of that program. And it takes a little bit of work and it takes some time to kind of develop those relationships. But whether that's done within a CFP program or done just in the business school or, you know, in the human sciences school, it doesn't really matter, but make those connection points and you'll find that you'll start to get that flow of talent that that want to live in your city and maybe you've never heard about what an advisory firm is, but they'll love it once they get there. I think it's an interesting idea, even just going back to the hospitality you know, industry. You mentioned the Tyson's Corner restaurants. Years ago, hosting an event for large RIAs, we had one of Danny Meyer's you know, heads of client experience come in and talk to the group. And it was not only one of the best presentations I've ever heard, it was the most engaged I think I've seen 
an audience of you know, leaders of RIA firms with a speaker. And they all went up to her after. They all gave cards and they all said, do you do one-to-one consulting? Because you know, people can be taught certain roles, right, and how to functionally do well in a certain job. There is something about that client experience and the hospitality element that is really part of your DNA. So if you can find them, that's great advice. <laughs> make sure that you, uh, you, you can keep in touch and make sure that they know when you do have the right opening. So that's a great piece of advice there. One other part of the conversation that I think is really important, we look a little bit at compensation in some of the research that we've done. We didn't do a, a tremendously deep dive on compensation levels, but you know, we know that for certain roles, you know, specifically roles where there is a shortage of talent, we've seen some changes in their compensation levels. I think more interestingly, though, we're starting to see some shifts in the composition of their comp packages. I mean, we heard a lot about that in the virtual think tank that we just did a few weeks ago. I'm curious what you're seeing as you look into next year and beyond. How do you think comp packages will evolve, particularly if we're in markets that may be going sideways or down? Yeah, and actually, I'm really glad we didn't go super deep on comp. We didn't talk about this <laughs> as we were prepping, but... I, I love the research that we've done this year because we've been able to turn it around so quickly and be able to get questions out to advisors and within a couple of weeks, be able to get that information into their hands. So it's really, really relevant. And I don't think that it really matters what the firm down the street is paying their people. What matters is what what are you offering the people that are going to come join you, monetary and non-monetary? And then how do you use that as a way to retain them and 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 develop them. And so it's been interesting the last couple of years, COVID's changed a lot about how we work, whether it's whether we're in the office or at home, but just even thinking about the priorities that we have in life. I have seen a, a huge number of my peers in their 30s going back to grad school when they never thought that they would, changing priorities around the hours that they work, maybe not changing the total number, but just how those hours play out. And so that's starting to then be expressed also in what people value and how they're compensated. So we all need to earn a living wage. And I think our industry is more than generous in that sense. And everyone's generally doing pretty fine on on the, the salary side. But what are some of the other levers that we can push and pull to kind of make things interesting and engaging for for the staff and for the soon-to-be partners, if they're a you know on that track, so there's a couple of things that I've seen that were really good. Um, I've seen some RAAs start to pay off student loans or to pay for schooling that will help develop them into the advisor, whether it's for a CFP or a CFA or some other kind of technical uh, role. I've seen some firms redeploying assets and how they spend money on their employees to extend family leave options. That costs money to the business, even though the employee might not see it as dollars in their pocket, but the ability for a mother or a father or an adoptee or a surrogate to be able to take three, four, five months off and come back and know that they're going to have their job is a really positive, engaging retention tool that I'm seeing more and more. And one of the really positive sides is the equality between maternal leave and paternal leave and giving the dads a chance to go and spend time with their kids, you know, in that that newborn phase. That's been, you know, a non-monetary but incredibly tangible gift to a lot of people. But that doesn't apply to everybody. Some people are not going to have children or are already past that in their time. So as employers, it's the challenge is to find those triggers and find those things that 
apply to the people that are working for you and apply to the people that you really want to retain. And one of the things that came out this week here at, at BMY Mellon and Pershing is uh, Robin Vince, our CEO, announced that every employee globally, we have about 50,000 employees globally at BMY Mellon, but every employee globally who today wasn't eligible for whatever reason for the stock grant program that is part of our incentive comp was given 10 stock in, in BNY Mellon. And that costs a lot of money to our business, but that's something that was really important for us to show our investment in staff that might just be starting out in their career. And what a gift to be able to have that and to open a brokerage account and be able to feel like you're participating in the growth of the organization. So when we think about whether it's gifting or making equity available for purchase, that's perhaps one of those levers that we can push and pull for certain employees um, at, at different times of their career to engage them a little bit deeper in the compensation and in the, the growth of the business moving forward. Yeah, I think your overall point that it's not just about the paycheck, right, is a very good one. For some people, it will always be that way. But I think for more and more people, particularly in the independent space, particularly as we're seeing you know, G2 come in and develop, uh, it seems like they want more you know, participation, not just in ownership, right? But they want to feel like they have a stake in the shape of the business too. So, I, you know, I love the way you described that. You mentioned helping to pay for grad school, helping to pay for CFP. That That's big, right? It goes a long way. Not only does it make them better and more qualified for their job, but gives you the opportunity as a business owner and a leader to make a direct investment in them, right? Above and beyond the paycheck. That said, I do want to touch on the equity sharing and the partnership opportunities. It's an interesting area, Specifically, when I'm looking at you know, the G2, not everyone in their 30s can afford to buy into right a partnership stake. And it seems like not everyone actually wants that. So I am curious just to get your take as you look ahead and you do see more talent, not just coming into the industry, but some of the types of firms and individuals that you've worked with in your next leadership form. As they're in a position to become partners, maybe even take on larger ownership stakes, where do we go from here? And do you see G2 stepping up and taking more of an ownership and wanting to? Yeah, I think this current generation that's coming through, the folks that are in their 30s and 40s who are starting to take on those leadership positions in these now larger, more complex fast-growing organizations, this is a motivated group of, of folks. They're, they're in this industry because they chose to be in this industry, whereas perhaps those in the older generations started their advisory businesses and, and maybe didn't foresee them becoming these you know behemoth things, and they really just wanted to be an advisor. But the folks that are in, in the industry now are here because they they know about it and they, they came in and, and they've grown up with the business. And so for a lot of these folks, they may have joined a firm when it was smaller and now it's large. And um, and so the, the ownership percentage that they might take might be significantly smaller. But by by starting that conversation in the hiring process, right? Don't wait until they've already been with you for 10 years before you have that conversation. But by making that part of your recruiting conversation, it's how you market yourself to your hires. So we market to clients, but we also need to market to talent. You know, we want to make sure that we're showing off as we're an employer of choice. We we have all these non-monetary perks. You know, this is our work-life uh, integration that we offer here. And so watching my peers and, and folks that I've worked with, particularly at Next Leadership Forum, 
go and ask for that. Ask for the responsibility. Ask for the the stretch roles. Ask for the opportunity to participate in equity. I think that's a really, really positive step. But it's also not for everybody. And so if the firm doesn't have some structural way to assess somebody's fit to be a partner, then I think you're going to land in a little bit of hot water and and not not be prepared to say no and perhaps say yes to somebody that you shouldn't have or say yes, but not right now. And here is the here are the things that we want to work on with you to get you into a position where you are ready to be a partner of this business. Um, and even taking a step back from that is if you don't have your core values totally locked down and you're not super confident in in what the growth goals are for the business and how can you ask somebody to come in and be a partner? And so I think it just forces us to keep digging into the the management of the business and making sure that we have the right structures and, and processes in place that when we do bring in a partner, even if they've been an employee for 10 years, that it's the right thing for them. It's the right thing for the business so that you're not having to then unwind those conversations. And it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be for everybody. As you said, there are some folks where perhaps financially or just risk not interesting to them. Um, and so we have to be careful then as as managers and business owners not to then see that rejection as, well, they don't want to invest in this business, but then understand what are other things that might be important to them where we can create that ownership mentality without the equity piece. Um, I will will say too that, you know, on the money side, I, I heard Mark Spurgeon say this so many times is money doesn't motivate. We have to create environments where motivated people will flourish. And the money side, it's a hygiene factor. We expect to be paid. We know that we're going to get paid for the work we've done, but we need to create this environment where people are motivated to to contribute and, and do more. I think we've touched on a lot of the different things that if you want to be, I love that term, you know, the employer of choice, right? If you want to be the employer of choice in your region, it's obviously much more about comp. We haven't really touched on career pathing and what that should or could look like. That could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself. But I think your points just around the equity sharing piece. I mean, I, I think about some consulting projects I did not long ago where we were trying to help firms figure out how to get equity into the hands of G2. And some of them looked at the numbers and just said, as much as I'd like this, I'm in my early 30s. I'm starting a family. I'm trying to buy a house. I'm trying to save for college. This is a huge investment. And as much as I'd like to be able to do it, I can't. Um, so there are other ways to create value, right? Um, so I, your point is very well received. And I hope the audience, I'm sure it resonates with a lot of them too. Now, I know that they're in you know the the future the wealth management firm the future research project that we've been working on we've touched on so many different things i've learned more from this project than any other research project I've, I've worked on we've done two surveys two think tanks you know multiple podcasts i really look at every interview as a continuation of a, our focus group or think tanks but i am curious you know we touched on technology client experience Human capital, which I think is really the most important part of this conversation about the wealth management firm of the future. Was there anything that stood out to you in particular you know, that was enlightening? Anything that sticks with you that you've learned from this that is really resonating and you're carrying into your work as we head into 2023? Yeah, there's been, as you said, a lot of lessons learned and um, and the ability just to you know, the way that we've structured this research project in 
getting the big data and then coming in and putting that think tank together and seeing real firm executives react to that data and and respond to how that relates to their business and be able to kind of craft these stories out of there. I think, you know, What's been exciting to see is this this positive focus on growth and there's there's no question that we're not growing and and it creates such great opportunity for the people now and for the people in the future. And that to me has just been really encouraging. And and when we when we're in the think tanks and we talk about how 20 percent of firms grew by 100 percent in the last five years and expect to do the same again in the next five years, you know, you do the math on some of some of the firms and you sit there and you watch them with the, you know, the cogs turning about what that would mean to their revenue and whatever. There's opportunities to create roles in firms that we just don't have today. And we've seen a little bit of that. We've seen, you know, the marketing person come in and we've seen some more unique tech positions come in. But I think when, when I start to talk to people, what they're really excited about is getting to a point where they can have some really, really specialized positions that are directly contributing to the client experience that they are trying to deliver. There's been such a heightened focus on client experience where, you know, when we were forced to all go back and, you know, be virtual, how do we make that great client experience? And now that we're coming back in person. And so I was talking to somebody the other day, they're down in Miami and they really wanted to get all of their staff back in the office. They hired a lady who they call her the office mum. And her job is to take care of the staff in the office. And at three o'clock, she's bringing them all espressos with a little, you know, cake on the side. She's like, prepping. Yeah, I want one of those too, right? Uh, you know, prepping conference rooms and just making sure that everything's set up so that the staff can just focus on doing their job. And all their people suddenly came back to the office. Amazing, right? You know, when they're when they feel like they're physical and and safety needs are taken care of, they want to come back to the office. I have somebody else who moved out of an operations position into a human capital role. I can't remember what her title is, but basically the role was created out of her sitting in the organization from intern up to a people manager and seeing the gap in the organization, she went to the CEO and said, I think we need someone in human capital. I think we need someone who's going to think about learning and development and retention and mentoring and performance reviews. And we need to create more coordination and structure around that. And to their credit, they created this role for her and she's in it. She's doing an amazing job and she's so happy in that role. We're not just a wealth management company. We're like a hybrid wealth management, wealth tech company. And I know not every firm can do that, right? But if the leading firms are doing it now, they crack the code and they figure out how it can accelerate their growth. We're not that far, maybe five, maybe seven years from seeing that second tier come in and try and figure out how they can either build or perhaps even rent right? some of that as well. Um, so we've covered a lot here today, but I have to ask the project itself, I, like we've both clearly learned a tremendous amount from, but is there anything I didn't ask you about the project or anything I didn't ask you about the wealth management firm of the future that I should? So on the project, I, I've been thinking about this um, and I'm glad you asked because I I love data and I love research, but I get asked a lot. Um, I, you know, I work with a couple of hundred advisory firms every year across the country, and I cover a spectrum of small firms, big firms, behemoth firms. 
And they all want to know what the data says. You know, tell me what this survey says. I want a copy of this report. And so I would love to see us like crash the website because too many people are trying to do the survey. And and the way that we're trying to structure it, as I mentioned earlier, is this kind of quick turnaround where it's only a few questions and we can kind of get that data back into people's hands really, really quickly. So you can take that information and use it to drive decisions in the business. Yeah. So that's my my plug for I will take any help I can get when it comes to getting more participation in our survey. So thank you very much. And it's not just for the the raw numbers. It's not just for you know, the sake of getting more and more data that helps. But I think the value in research like what we're doing is it helps find common ways to benchmark growth and success. Um, if there are, I'll just stick with the RA community, 11 to 12,000 pure RIA wealth management firms out there, they could all be looking at growth rates and growth expectations that have completely different shape, scope, and definition, right? So if we can use this as a little bit more of a common denominator for the industry and we can benchmark ourselves against our peers in the industry overall, I think we're all in a better place. So with that, Lisa, thank you so much for doing this in person. It feels so much more fun to be across the table from somebody versus screaming into a Zoom machine as we've been doing for so many years, it feels like now. But I appreciate all the work, all the thought and all the time that you put into the project as well. Mark, I really appreciate it. As I said, this has been a lot of fun, this project. We've learned a lot. I think we have a lot more to learn. And every time we do a survey, we think of 10 more surveys that we want to do and, and topics we want to cover. So um, thank you for doing this with us and for the podcast. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you again, Lisa, for joining us today and to the entire BNY Mellon Pershing team for partnering with us on this next wealth management firm of the future project. It's been one of the highlights of 2022 for me and for the wealth management and wealth management IQ team. So again, this is Mark Bruno signing off from the next podcast. We look forward to sharing more research very, very soon. Our update to the next survey will be coming out very, very shortly. But in the meantime, thank you everybody for tuning in here today. Thank you to those who participated in the surveys and who have joined our webinars. We look forward to rolling out more research highlighting what we think the wealth management firm of the future will look like very soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks for stopping by the next podcast.